Well, just before they arrived back in Capernaum, Jesus and his disciples in Matthew 17, 22, he tells his disciples specifically this, that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And the Bible says that when the disciples heard this message from the Lord, they were deeply grieved. How is it, they would ask, that the Lord would die in the hands of sinful men? They just couldn't fathom such a a terrible humiliation and defeat. He was supposed to save us, they thought. However, by the time they arrived in the seaside village of Capernaum, they had already forgotten about all their grief and all their worry, and now they began to think only about themselves. And it's on the heels of such prideful self-centeredness that Jesus decides to teach them a lesson. And so if you haven't already turned there, turn to Matthew 18. We're beginning a new chapter of Scripture this morning, Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is a loaded and dynamic and power-packed passage. It is as supercharged as any chapter in the Bible. It is familiarly and famously known as containing some very sobering teaching on the nature of church discipline, but in truth, the teaching in this chapter is far more deep than that. It's virtually bottomless. There's so much in this chapter. It's not just about church discipline. There's a whole panoply of doctrines, and they all work together in a miraculous way. In Matthew 18, Jesus makes some of His most dramatic and heartfelt statements about His own children, His little ones, as He calls them. And as we'll see, His heart extends even further. And so we're going to begin at the beginning of chapter 18 here, verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven." And whoever receives such one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, this chapter, if you were to read the whole thing, this chapter really resists subdivisions. It's hard to, to break these verses up because, frankly, the whole chapter flows together and, and builds together and builds off of itself. Some biblical scholars have seen verses 1 through 4 as one unit and 5 through 9 as a separate unit, but really, as we prepare to work through this whole chapter of the next couple of weeks, we're going to see verse by verse that all these connect pretty well together, and so we're going to just build verse upon verse, and today I want to consider these verses 1 through 6. When we examine the Gospels together, we see that there's a a picture that begins to open up for us. According to Mark 9.36, the disciples had been locked in a heated discussion on the road back to Capernaum. They had been traveling for the last several months, and we've been seeing this in the last several months of even our study, but for several months they've been traveling out into the Gentile regions, going back and forth between Israel and the Gentile regions, and now they're coming back to Capernaum, and as they're traveling back, they're in this heated discussion. According to Luke 9.47, Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. He knows what they're thinking, but He, pr- he presses them for an explanation. 
And he specifically asks them, he says, what were you all talking about as you were on the way? What were you talking about? Mark notes that when he says that to them, they all kept silent. They didn't want to say a word. However, they know they can't put anything past him. And so finally, they come to him and they ask him the question that he's been asking them to tell him. And that's what Matthew records here in verse 1. Here's the question that they didn't want to admit to, but here, here it comes. Here's the question. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this seems to be an often debated thing for them, and as we're going to see, they're still arguing about this later on in Matthew chapter 20. And for our purposes, and when you look at this and you read this verse, as Christians, we look at this and we say, this is a silly thing to argue about, doesn't it? Why would we fight about that? Why would you even consider who's the greatest among all of us? Some have noted here that maybe Peter is more or less the dominant disciple in these chapters. That could be a, there could be a textual theme here. After all, he's the one who's praised for his faith back in chapter 16. He's one of the three of disciples that are broken away and go up to the transfiguration with Jesus. He's the one who walks on water with Jesus. He's the one who Jesus goes and tell, tells to get the fish to pay the taxes. So over and over again, we see Peter as a prominent disciple featured in this section of Scripture. And perhaps Matthew's gospel is indicative of the kind of preference that Peter is experiencing, and the other disciples are just downright jealous. But that's our sinful nature, isn't it? Now, I don't think that most Christians today are audacious enough to believe that they really are the greatest in all of God's kingdom, but they sure act like it sometimes. Furthermore, it comes when, when we see that someone else is growing beyond ourselves or receiving blessings that we aren't getting. And then what happens? Well, then you get jealous. Well, why is that? Well, it's because we believe that we deserve better. We think that we, we deserve better. It's pride manifesting itself through self-pity. There's two sides of pride. There's self-promotion, which says, I'm great, and there's self-pity, self-pity that says, because you don't think I'm great, I'm going to be upset about it. Both of those things are pride. And that's what happens here. As soon as we see others being praised or exalted, we, get, we feel left behind and our hearts retaliate in bitterness and resentment. And even though our mouth never says, I'm the greatest, our heart screams it. But oh, the Lord, the Bible says, God is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to the proud. He detests pride. He hates it. Yet so many dare to assert themselves in such a way. And that's what the, the, the disciples are doing right here. The disciples, they come to Jesus and they want to know for sure, for the record, for the record, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And how does Jesus respond? Now, he could have blasted them for their pride. He really could have. I mean, I would have, right? He could have blasted them for their small-mindedness. But instead, what he does is he seizes on the opportunity to teach them. Now, keep in mind here, as he's about to teach them, they're inside a house. They've, that's where they were before. They're outside. Peter comes in from, paying, from talking to the tax collector. He's now inside with Jesus, and that's where they all are together. They're inside this house. Which house it is, we don't know. It's possibly Peter's house. It seems as though there was some family with them. But as he's sitting there among the disciples, verse 2 tells us, if you look at your Bible, verse 2 tells us that he called a child to himself and set him before them. Now, the only disciple that we know is married at this time is Peter. 
Now, he's the only one we know for sure. There could be others we don't know, but Peter is definitely married. So this could have been his child, but it might not have been. We really don't know whose child this is and where this child came from. But the child's in the house, and it seems as though the child feels very natural uh, in this house because it would have been nothing for him to come to Jesus at that point. We know that this little boy is close by. Now, Matthew doesn't use the generic word for child here in the Greek, which is technon. He doesn't use that word. Instead, Matthew, when he refers to this child, refers to him as, and the Greek word padion, which means little one or very small child. Perhaps this boy was only two or three years old. Of course, my two-year-old doesn't come when I ask him to, but then again, I'm not the Lord. So, But this little boy comes to Jesus. Now, there is a progression here, and I want us to make sure we catch this, and I want to give this to you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a lot of times when you have a parallel account, you have to read all three and sort of see them together, and it helps us to fill in the gaps. There aren't gaps in Scripture, but these accounts give us more of the picture, and so it's helpful to read the synoptic, same view, same optic, synoptic gospels together. Matthew records that Jesus stands the boy before the group in their midst. So they're all gathered around him. He is seated and he brings the child, this little boy, over and stands him there with all the disciples looking on. However, as he's talking, according to Luke 9.47, Jesus then pulls the boy to his side. He pulls him to his side. And then Mark 9.36 records that he actually scoops the boy up in his arms We know the boy is small because Jesus is able to hold him with his arms and likely sitting him on his lap as he talks to them. So he's brought the child over, stood him there, brought him close, and then likely put him on his lap to begin teaching. Again, a small boy. Now, in ancient Middle Eastern culture, children were oftentimes not highly regarded. In fact, in many ways, they were not regarded at all. But that's not the way that God sees children. God sees children very differently than the rest of the world, even our world today. Psalm 127.3 pronounces children to be a gift of the Lord, and a man with many children is regarded as blessed. And Jesus embraces this small child for a very specific reason, to teach the disciples a lesson about greatness. Look at verse 3. He said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted... And become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as he often does when he's about to teach, delivering a timeless truth, he prefaces his words by saying, truly I say to you. It's a phrase that's meant to draw attention to what he's about to say. It's as if he's saying, listen up, I'm about to tell you truth. You're hearing truth right now, so pay attention. Now, we know that all of Jesus' words are truth. But this is when he's drawing attention to something very specific that he wants them to get. And so he says, truly I say to you. And while he's holding this child in his arms, he says this. Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, throughout the Bible, there are many ways of speaking about the doctrine of salvation. Remember back, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that he must be born again. Again, another kind of child reference. It's a, a baby. You must become a new baby and be born again. So that's the idea here. Other verses call that doctrine regeneration. That's a theological term. But it really just means to be born again, born anew, literally born from above. Also, salvation is known as redemption. 
even deliverance. And so different words, different phrases for the same reality. However, each of them portrays some kind of variation of nuance here. But the big idea is this, that all human beings, all of us, are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we all need God to save us from judgment. That is the big idea. And Jesus then comes to earth, earns forgiveness through His perfect obedience, dies on the cross as our substitute, paying for our sins. He's buried, and then He's risen up again the third day to bring life forth for all who would believe. And that is essentially what He tells the disciples previously that made them so grieved. But that's the essence of the gospel. It's the most basic foundational truth of Christianity. And yet when Jesus foretells all of this happening, the disciples can't accept it. Remember, Peter back in Matthew 16, 22, cries out, as soon as he hears that truth, cries out, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you, to which Jesus rebukes him sharply. And this is hard to comprehend because, keep in your mind, only six verses prior to that, Peter had professed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet, when they hear that Jesus will die and rise, they're filled with grief. What's going on? Are they believers or are they not believers? How could they be so dichotomous? How could they be shifting back and forth between two opinions and two beliefs and so shaky in their faith? And here's the thing, though, and you add to that, in Matthew 16, 17, doesn't Jesus call them believers? He he praises the faith of Peter. And he says, blessed are you because God has revealed something to you. So why does he warn them here that if they're not converted, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven? Aren't they already Christians? Well, I think it's the context of Jesus' words that helps us here. I think context is very important here. Remember, they've all been arguing about which one of them is the greatest, right? They're fighting about this. They can't stop bickering about it to the point where Jesus actually has to stop them and say, what are you talking about? It's a base, prideful, selfish discussion that betrays their own profession of faith. They exalt the Lord in one hand, and then as they're walking backwards to get to where they're going, behind His back, they're talking about how great one another is. Now, we understand that spiritually, theologically, salvation is monergistic. It's one-sided. It's rebirth from above. Or to put it in most simpler terms, God alone saves sinners. God alone saves sinners. We do not cooperate with Him in this. For example, when the Gentiles hear the gospel in Acts chapter 13, Luke records in verse 48, when they, the Gentiles, heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many had been appointed to eternal life believed, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. See, God determines who comes to Him. Jesus is the one who grabs a child and brings him to Him. That's why Jesus tells Peter after his profession, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because you figured it all out. Is that what He says? He doesn't say that, does He? He says, Blessed are you because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The big idea here is that God saves sinners. He reveals truth. He changes hearts. Read Jeremiah 31. 
Read Ezekiel 34. I mean, this is the doctrine of Scripture, that God regenerates hearts. And yet, even though, yes, we believe that God is responsible for salvation, God is responsible for calling, election, adoption, all of these things, all of that's true, and yet we are commanded to believe. It doesn't absolve us from the responsibility, the obligation to God to believe and trust in Him and obey Him. And we are commanded to repent of our sins and to turn away from them completely. Both of those things are true. In fact, our obedience to God is one of the ways that we know that we belong to Him. God demands obedience from His people. And that obedience is proof that God has changed something in our hearts. You can't say, I love Jesus, and then go and do whatever you want in derision of Him. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. And it's this visible repentance that Jesus is referring to here. See, the word translated converted in this verse is the Greek word strepho, which means to turn. The NIV renders this as change, but really there's, the sense of it is even more defined than that. The, the sense of the word is a turning, and, I, and in the context here, a turning toward the Lord. It's a turn. And herein lies the problem. They weren't acting as though they had turned to the Lord. They weren't acting converted. Now, maybe they were elected. Maybe they were called. Maybe God, through His power and through His might, had redeemed them, but they certainly did not appear by their behavior to be converted. How so? Well, because they're acting like pagans. They're selfish. They're prideful. They're acting conceited, self-important. And Jesus says... They must not be prideful like puffed-up Pharisees. Instead, as he brings a child to him, he says they must become like children if they are to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is it about this child sitting on his lap that is so desirable to the Lord? What is it about children that he wants us to become like them? It's not that they're sinless. In fact, toddlers throw the worst fits I've ever seen in my life. Some adults, but usually the children are the worst. So it's not that children are sinless. So it's not total, complete innocence altogether. It's not that they're more mature or wise than adults, certainly not. It's not even that they're virtuous or righteous. None of these things. Look at verse 4, though. Verse 4 gives us the answer it's their humility. Their humility. See, here's the thing. Children have nothing to offer, at least by way of need. They can't give you anything that you really need. They're completely dependent on their parents. They're not strong. They're weak. They're vulnerable. They're defenseless. All these things epitomize humility. And remember, James 4, 6 says that God is opposed to the proud. He doesn't want us standing on our own two feet, sort of militantly against him, saying, I can do it, Lord. He doesn't want that. But rather, he gives grace, unmerited favor. He gives grace to the humble, to the humble, to those who know they need him. Why are we called to be humble? Well, for starters, because God alone has saved you. What can you brag about? That's what Ephesians 2 says, right? 
For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. You can't brag about being saved. Look at me, I'm a Christian. Look what I did. We're debtors of grace, my friends. If you're a Christian, it's because God took pity on you and on me. And we praise Him for that. And so you can't brag about your salvation, so therefore you must be humble. Second reason to be humble, because He's God and we're not. And every day that we're, we are alive, we remember this, don't we? And the older we get, we, we get that drilled into our heads. I am certainly not God. I can't even get myself out of my own way. And the third reason is, again, because we need Him. He does not need us. He doesn't need us for anything. God didn't create us because He was lonely. He didn't create us because of some deficiency within the Trinity. He didn't create us because He wanted us to help Him build the world. It was already here when He made us. And so to act as though we don't need Him is the very essence of unbelief. More than this, it's actually idolatry. It's idolatry. It's worshiping self and not worshiping God. Acting like you're the greatest in the kingdom or grumbling when others don't worship the ground you walk on, that is the epitome of self-worship. And so many people do it. And I'll tell you, and I would include all of us and myself, that we are all at some points in our life guilty of this, thinking that we deserve better than what we have, thinking that somehow we're greater. I've published books. I've preached around the country. I must be something. No, I'm not, and neither are you. We are not worthy of any grace that God gives us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. What we do here is so minuscule in terms of the plan and purposes of God. Whatever we do is mere garnish. But God calls us then to become like children, to become like children. And in many places in Scripture, the Lord calls His people little children. In fact, if you read the the Gospel of John, if you read uh, the letters of John, that was one of John's favorite titles for believers as he would minister all over over the world, is he would call people little little children, my little children. There's no greater joy than to watch my children walking in the truth. He got that from Jesus. The Lord calls us His little children, and it's this vulnerability and this humility and weakness and dependence on God, that's what He treasures in us. He loves our childlike faith. He loves our obedience. He loves our dependence. And for those of you who have children, when your your little child just comes to you adoringly, dependent, weak, and they just run to you and they, daddy or mommy, they need you. You're not expecting them to do anything for you, right? No, they come to you and your heart melts simply because they're your child. They're your little one and you love them. And if that's us and we're sinners, then how much greater is that love that God bestows on us? We are called little children. And doesn't Jesus say, and we covered this quite a while ago in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. The lowly, the weak, the humble, the nothings, that's us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what is the result? 
What does he tell them belongs to the poor in spirit? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Same idea. Same exact idea. Blessed are those who essentially become like children. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here is extolling, lifting up, praising humility. He values those who are dependent on him. Who exercise true faith. Do you want to know what kind of Christian is great in God's eyes? Look at verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The more genuinely humble you are, the greater you are in God's kingdom. And he says all this. This is what I love about this passage. He says all of this while holding a small, weak helpless child in his arms. This boy was an object lesson to them. Be humble like spiritual children. The Apostle Paul says virtually the same thing in Philippians chapter 2. I know many of you, the ladies, are studying Philippians right now in the Monday night study, and so I know you're familiar with these verses. But the Apostle Paul, he encourages the church not to argue about who's the greatest, Now, I've never mediated a church conflict where that was the the prevailing issue of who's the greatest. But here's the thing. It's always underneath church conflict. We always think that our way is the right way, that we're the best at what we're doing, that this ministry revolves around us. This is what it all comes down to. It's pride and self-centeredness is at the very core. It's at the very root of bitterness and contention. But Paul says here, don't do that. Don't be arguing amongst yourselves about who's the greatest. He says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as being more important than yourselves. Did you catch that? Consider others as being greater than yourself. That's converted thinking. Not thinking that you're the best in the whole group, but you actually look at other people and you say, you know what? They're pretty great. I love what they're doing. I love their ministry. I love their heart. I love their service. I love their grace and their kindness and their compassion. And you see them serving quietly and you say, oh, I love that. And you praise God for them. Lord, thank you for so-and-so. Thank you for bringing them into my life. And they come and they pray with you and they disciple you and they worship with you. And you're excited for others You don't think that you're the greatest person to walk in the room. You extol others, and you regard yourself as lower than other people. That's humility, says Paul. And who is our ultimate example of humility? Paul gives us that answer as well. It's Christ. And he says in verse 5 and 6 of the same passage, although he exists in the form of God, essentially, he's saying he actually is great. Jesus is God. And yet, he humbled himself and emptied himself and debased himself by by dying on a cross to the point of death. He's our model of greatness. Humility and self-sacrifice. Jesus has every right. If he still was walking on earth right now, Jesus has every right to walk in this room, stand here, kick me out of the pulpit, stand here and say, I'm the greatest, worship me. He has every right. And one day he will. 
However, that's not what we see pictured here in the incarnation. He comes, and even though he's great and speaks as one who is great because he's God, he models humility. And when he's cursed and spit upon, he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't walk around with a chip on his shoulder. He doesn't tear other people down in their weakness. He's humble. He says it in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because I'm prideful and arrogant? Is that what he says? No. Because I'm gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's our God. That's our Lord. And so, do you want to be great? Humble yourself. Die to yourself. Become lowly, helpless, spiritual children. And the Bible says God will regard you as great. He's building on this metaphor here of believers as spiritual children, and then he adds this in verse 5. And he's talking again, he's talking about, he's got his child in his arms here. Whoever receives such one such child in my name receives me. He says a very similar thing back in chapter 10. He says, if he who receives you, talking about the disciples, receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He's talking there about the union between Jesus and the disciples, as well as the union between the Father and the Son. And when these weak and humble children of God, when they go out into the world to minister, they're going as representatives of Christ. And so wherever we go, beloved, wherever we as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever we go, we're going as ambassadors and disciples and representatives of Jesus. And by virtue of Christ's own union with the Father, His spiritual children represent Him as well. Now, it's at this point that Jesus begins to shift the focus in His teaching. Again, he's holding up a child here in front of a group of men as an example of spiritual humility, as a rebuke for their pride and their selfishness. And frankly, if you're in the room with the disciples and he's saying all these things, you're going to become embarrassed. You're going to be embarrassed that just a few minutes before you're arguing about which one of you is great. And now Jesus pulls a toddler onto his lap and says, you have to be like this one. That's embarrassing for you considering the ego that they had. But the point would have been very clear. Now, as he continues to hold this child, he's speaking all of this, talking about us as spiritual children, and he's speaking about us in a very protective way. He's, he's moving here. This is why I don't like the divisions of outlines sometimes, because he's moving in his analogy, and he's building in his teaching. This is continuous. It was never meant to be chopped up. The verse references are for us for study, but the narrative is, is meant to be continuous here. Verses 5 and 6, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Here, Jesus is issuing one of the sharpest warnings recorded in Scripture to those who would hurt one of his own children. Now, the promise in verse 5, look at verse 5, the promise in verse 5 is that whoever receives, the idea is being uh, whoever welcomes and accepts 
one of my children effectively receives him. So, when a missionary or when a minister or when a believer walks into someone's home and they bring the gospel with them and a person is not adversarial, and they bring them in, they welcome, they say, well, let's talk, let's sit down and have a, have a conversation. Whether or not they become Christians or not, they have welcomed in an, an ambassador of Jesus into their home. But you slam the door in their face, get out of here. You're effectively saying, Lord, I don't want you in my house. That's how he regards the messengers of Christ. So whoever receives my children receives me. And then he articulates in Matthew 10, 42, of the very smallest kindness. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. And so how the world treats believers matters to the Lord. But there are those who would seek to hurt his beloved children. Certainly that includes abuse and persecution, but that's not the main focus here. The warning is against those who would cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. This word stumble translates the Greek word skandalizo, literally means to fall away or the implication is to fall into sin. To cause a believer to stumble is to tempt or manipulate them into sinning, even to the end where you convince them to deny their faith. And I'll tell you, non-Christians do this all the time. And you read the course of church history, and I've read a lot of church history where you see Kings and rulers and governors and all kinds of people try to abuse and berate Christians into denying the faith. It goes all the way back to the day when Nero was throwing them into pits with lions, watching them getting torn apart, and saying, well, just deny the Lord and we'll spare you the gruesome death. They make sport of trying to get Christians to deny their faith or violate their principles. And sadly, there are even Christians who do this to other Christians. Now, they might not set out to get them to deny their faith, but they bully them, and they falsely accuse them, and they slander them, and they judge them. I'm talking about brothers and sisters in Christ doing this to other brothers and sisters, where people tear each other down to the point where that struggling believer just gives up and walks away. And this happens in churches all the time. All the time. And I'll tell you, this is a a militant fight for church leadership to stop these kinds of things from happening. And why is this a militant fight against this kind of division and slander? Because Jesus holds out the strictest warnings against it, against doing this. And it's for this kind of transgression causing his little ones to stumble into sin. It's against this transgression against God's children that Jesus doesn't hold back. He says it would be better for him, the person who does this, it'd be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is a terrifying verse. It was not unheard of for the Romans to execute people by drowning them. It's a horrendous thing because not only do you die an agonizing death of suffocating drowning, but you also die knowing that no one is ever likely going to find your body ever again. You're, you're lost 
never to be found. And not only is it terrorizing for the person who is dying, it's also terrorizing for the family because now you don't have a body to bury and you don't have closure. There's no mourning process. This is just an aside. One of Isaac Smith's own children, when he was 16, went off to to serve on a ship to become a fisherman. And he got caught up into a a British man of war and went went into battle. And he was lost at sea. And to this day, you go to Smith Meeting House, and there's a plot between Isaac's tomb and his wife's tomb. There's an empty space where his son's body is supposed to be. It's not there. There's no closure. It's a terrifying, horrendous thing for a person who dies in this way. Jesus describes even further the terrifying practice of securing a heavy weight around a victim's neck and then throwing them into the bottom of the sea. What kind of weight are we talking about here? It's a millstone. A millstone was a a large round stone, somewhere around three to four inches thick, 18 inches in diameter, and they would set two stones on top of each other and they would put grain in between and then a donkey would be tied to it and the donkey would walk in circles and grind this grain out between these two stones. And this millstone could have been, depends on how big it is, but from my research, at least 500 pounds for a normal-sized millstone. Now imagine the horror of being latched to this millstone and a thing tied around your neck and then someone throwing you into the ocean. And then Jesus says this, it would be better punishment than that, it would be better punishment in that regard than for the person who is going to call others to fall into sin. Drowning with a millstone around your neck is better for you than what I'm going to unleash on a person who causes a believer to stumble. That is terrifying. I'm scared preaching this. And he seizes on this concept of stumbling in verses 7 through 10, which we're going to get to next week by God's grace. But the point is, is why, why, why are we scaring each other with this verse? Because Jesus takes this very seriously. Jesus is completely opposed and against and even angry at those who would cause his little ones to stumble into sin. But there's one more element that we haven't yet touched here. The main point of Jesus' teaching is that he has a special love for his little ones, his own children. We are to humble ourselves like children, verses 1 through 4. We are to guard spiritual children against stumbling, verses 5 through 9. We are to regard spiritual children highly and care for them, verses 10 through 14. So there's a theme here of the care and love and tenderness towards spiritual children, toward believers, And that love and tenderness and care and concern for believers carries us into verses 15 through 17 when we talk about church discipline and restoring those who are fallen off. So all this ties together. It's really important that we get this base teaching underneath us, the basis of all this, to carry us into those verses. Again, spiritual children. But I want you to keep on remembering the context here. Jesus is teaching all of this while he's holding a child in his arms. Is there more going on here? I believe there is. It's not a secret that God loves children. Furthermore, if God doesn't love children, if God doesn't have a special place in his heart for children, then the analogy 
of us becoming like children breaks down. Never once does Jesus turn a child away. In fact, he actually gets angry when children are discouraged from coming to him. He does so in Matthew 19, which we're going to get to eventually. But he gets angry when people stop little tiny kids, children, from coming to him. In that same passage, we actually see him blessing the children indiscriminately when they come to him. In places like Ephesians 6.4, Colossians 3.21, fathers, fathers are instructed not to frustrate their children, not to exasperate them. Well, why? Because you're causing them to stumble. When a father is so heavy-handed with his own kids and he frustrates them to the point where they, can't, they just can't win, I'm not talking about godly discipline. I'm talking about beating them down so bad that they just cannot see their way forward. And then you bring them to church on Sunday and you preach Jesus to them and they don't see it modeled. What happens is they look at dad on Sunday, they look at dad the other six and a half days of the week and they see the incongruency of the whole thing. They're frustrated down to the point where they're angry. When they're 18, they walk away. So the Lord instructs fathers not to exasperate their children, but to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're going to talk a lot more about this in future weeks here. And as we progress through chapters 18 and 19, we're going to continue to learn about God's special love for children. And so along with warning others not to cause believers to stumble, that's us, believers to stumble, I believe that he also intends a a secondary meaning here, a warning to all people to beware of causing any child to stumble. Those who would hurt children, whether it be physically, emotionally, or spiritually, are at the risk of suffering a worse punishment than drowning. That's why I believe that We're experiencing on some level God's judgment right now nationally because we have not even allowed 60 million children to survive the womb to even have a chance at life. You don't think there's judgment in heaven reserved for that? It's a judgment that is worse than having a millstone tied around your neck and drowned. No, God regards and loves children, and so should we also. We are tasked with loving children, especially God's children, believers. Yes, love the lost. Yes, love other people. You'll love your neighbor, but love one another. Isn't that what Jesus says in John 13? Love one another. And love them with a love that lifts them up and cares for them. Love one another with a love that values the other person that prefers them, that seeks their good, that lifts them up higher than yourself. You want to be great? Regard everybody else as being in a higher position than you. Not that you debase yourself and say, I'm garbage. No, you're a a beloved child of God. But that you would come to God and say, Lord, I am low. I am weak. Others are greater. Doesn't Paul say, I'm the chief of sinners? I'm the least of the apostles. He's not just feigning humility. I believe he really believed that. Lord, I am I'm nothing. But yet you accept me. Thank you. That's humility. And so love one another with that same kind of preferential love. And as you do, love children 
Because ultimately, the greatest good you could ever do for a child is not to cause them to stumble in their faith, but to lead them gently into the saving arms of Jesus Christ. And beloved, that is our charge. Our charge as Christians, especially Christians with a lot of kids, right underneath us, sitting right now, under, underneath us, our feet, are, are rooms full of children. Our charge from the Lord is to shepherd them and to lead them in the gospel, teach them the gospel, and shepherd them right into the arms of Christ. We do that, we have honored Him, and we have demonstrated a love for them. Don't frustrate them to anger. Prefer them, love them, shepherd them, guide them, because one day they're going to be sitting in these chairs when we're gone. But woe to us if this building is empty when we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we see your manifold wisdom in passages like this, where not only do you hit us right between the eyes with a rebuke over pride and self, selfishness and self-preference, and you hit us between the eyes against the sins of bitterness and contention and slander and treating others poorly, not only do you do that, but then you also exalt and, and lift up your own spiritual children. And you value us so much that you actually judge those who would cause us to fall into stumbling. Lord, you don't want us to stumble in our faith. You want us to grow. And yes, we are sinful. We need forgiveness. We need grace. We need mercy. Lord, we need your tenderness. Otherwise, we shrivel up. But yet, you reserve the strictest warning against those who would trip us up and, and knock us off of our faith. And yet, in the midst of all this, it's just so hard not to see your tenderness and your love for our children. We see it later in this chapter, and Lord, we're especially going to see it in chapter 19. Lord, you have such love and such tenderness for us. It's hard for us not to have our hearts broken when we actually get to see a glimpse of what your heart actually is. A heart that is so tender and lowly and gentle and merciful that we would even dare sin against you. A heart that is so pure and righteous and lovely that we tremble at the thought of judgment and we, we long for Righteousness, we long to be with you. When we see who you really are, we cannot help but be drawn to you. And you say very distinctly, let these little children come to me. And so, Lord, I pray, if there's any in this room who have never come to you, maybe they hear you calling, maybe they've wandered away, Maybe someone has caused their faith to stumble. Maybe they've fallen off the wagon. Maybe they've been hurt so badly by other people, even other believers. But Lord, if they hear your voice, I pray that you would draw them, that they would come to you and receive forgiveness for their sins against you and also receive healing and restoration in their own hearts that they would actually forgive others who have hurt them. Lord, I pray 
for a spirit of unity. Lord, do not let disunity and division and sin and scandal destroy this church, Lord. I'm not just speaking about today, but every day. Lord, protect this body of believers. Help us not to be stubborn. Help us not to hold other people's sins against them. But Lord, help us to consider other people as being more important than ourselves. Help us to be humble. And Lord, have mercy on us when we don't. Jesus, you came to give your life on the cross to pay for our sins. That all who would repent and believe would be saved and have eternal life with you. That is our hope. That is our gospel. That is our truth. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.